Welcome to Knowledgeable Aging. I'm your host, Jason Kotar. Joining us today to talk about inequity to equity in U.S. healthcare, learning from history for meaningful change today and in the future is Dr. Asante Dixon. Dr. Dixon is chairman of Adventist Healthcare, White Oak Medical Center, and co-founder president of Ascension Medical Educators, a professional services firm committed to providing quality academic advising, professional development, and positive self-assessment of students aspiring to the profession of medicine. He is a full-time CAQ neuroradiologist and a committed advocate of social justice and healthcare with significant contribution of time, talent, and finance in support of high school and college level pipeline initiatives for scholars aspiring to the profession of medicine. The presented content does not provide or constitute medical, financial, or legal advice. The content is for information purposes only. Viewing or listening to the content does not constitute a physician-patient, dentist-patient, fiduciary client, or attorney-client relationship. How are you doing today? All right, I'm doing well, thank you, thank you. Very good. Well, thank you for being here. Looking forward to our conversation. For those joining us for the live webinar, if you have any questions, type your questions in. Time permitting, we will do everything in our power to get your questions answered. So Dr. Dixon, I'd like to get started. We know that healthcare access in the US varies from person to person, which probably contributes to the disparities focused on during COVID. But what's the history of this seemingly unequal American healthcare provision, and why do we accept this? So thank you, Jason. Um, so let's give a historical refresher, and that may help us understand where we are today. Firstly, I'd like to give credit to Nicole Hannah-Jones, a New York Times investigative journalist um, who recently wrote the 1619 Project. Uh, a lot of the information historically I'm going to be giving you comes from her work, which was groundbreaking. Also, Harriet Washington, uh, she's the author of Medical Apartheid, and Dr. Myrtle Dixon, who is educator and author with expertise in environmental factors affecting educational child development. For the purpose of this lecture, Let's focus on African-Americans, okay, given the time limitation. So historically, let's start in the 1860s. In the 1860s, we have the emancipation of black people. Black people are free to go, however, they have no place to go. They have no place to live. They have no homes, they have no food, their transportation is often just their feet. Many of them didn't even have shoes to walk on. Um, they're sleeping in abandoned prisons, uh, refugee camps, former military barracks. They're crammed together. And what do we get when we have people crammed together in tight spaces? We get bad hygiene. This is a massive public health crisis at that time. If you can imagine, you literally have dead bodies of black people piled up in the streets um, in many places across the nation. Remember at this time, there's no structured hospital system. Hospitals by our standards today were deplorably nasty. Uh, remember at that time when you were sick, a lot of times doctors were coming to your homes to visit. So for these black people, there essentially was no health care. The federal government in response to all of these black people literally dying in droves, uh, creates the nation's first federal health care program, and that is the Freedmen's Bureau Medical Division. Uh, fun fact, 
Howard University um, in Washington, D.C. was established in 1867 and was named for Oliver Howard. He was a founder of the Freedmen's Bureau and was president of Howard University from 1869 to 1874. Lawmakers wanted to prevent the spread of disease, but specifically they wanted to prevent the spread of disease into white communities. But they didn't want to treat the black populations too well because they were fearful that they would create dependency. Dependency, okay? Despite the poor hospital resources and poor hospital staffing in black areas, some hospitals created by the Freedmen's Bureau were able to make progress. But whenever they were able to make progress, they were intentionally shut down. Death rates spiraled again. Then set in biologic racism theories. One of the biggest ones were, was uh, black people are biologically inferior and therefore they're not equipped for freedom. So you can see the cycle going on between illness, public health, fear, and biological racism that are, that's falling on the, head of, of the heads of black people. So let's fast forward a little bit more than half a century and you've got hospitals now being established, but keep in mind, hospitals are still all segregated, including religious-based hospitals. Segregation is the name of the game. In 1947, President Truman creates a program that he wants the American people to absorb called the National Health Program. Everybody in the program needs to pay in ahead of time and then draw from it when's needed. This sounds like what we know as universal healthcare. However, the American Medical Association fought this initiative to the death. Private insurance at that time is just beginning to take off and this national program hurts their profits and would bring black people into their private practices and their hospitals. They did not want that. They labeled President Truman a communist and they pled to the public, do not let politics get into medicine and destroy your doctor-patient relationship. They were successful. So who suffers? Black people and poor whites left out to dry once again. Fast forward again, 1964, the Civil Rights Act. The government says that they can pull support from hospitals that practice segregation. However, there's no group in place to support this. So health disparities persist. In 1965, under Lyndon Baines Johnson, there was another attempt to improve medicine or universal healthcare. This was Medicare, all right? This is the focus on elderly Americans. The American Medical Association attacks one more time. However, they're less successful by this time. Medicare is in place and it has been since 1965. So this kind of gives you a quick uh, 150 year summation of where um, organized medicine got its start and how that played a part in the medical disparities that we're seeing right now or healthcare disparities that we're seeing right now. 
Are there some statistics or trends that you can share to help us understand the gravity of our unequal health care? Sure. Um, in this segment, I will answer it with information that you can double check and you can fact check. If you just go to the CDC website, I'm essentially reading the same information that the CDC, CDC shares with all Americans, okay? But when you hear it come out of my mouth, sometimes it's kind of shocking. So cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. Um, and that's not surprising because the way we eat, which is a whole different topic, is horrible, okay? So black adults are at least 50% more likely to die of heart disease or stroke prematurely. And that's uh, before the age of 75 years old when we compare them to their white counterparts, okay? 50% more likely to die. The prevalence of adult diabetes is higher amongst black people uh, when compared to white people. The prevalence is also higher amongst adults without college degrees and those with lower household incomes. So we're essentially setting up for not only black people, it's not only race-based, but it's also economic-based where we're seeing disparity in diabetic treatment and diabetic outcomes, okay? Infant mortality. For black children, uh, their infant mortality rate is more than double that of white children. The rates also vary based on where you are in the country. So the rates are higher in the South and the Midwest than they are in all other parts of the country. So now we have also geographic factors playing a role here. Men are far more likely to commit suicide than women, regardless of race, race or ethnicity. So now sex is playing a role here in healthcare disparity. Um, suicide risks and rates are highest amongst Native Americans and whites. Black women are three times more likely to die from childbirth than white women. Research recently is showing that black babies have a higher survival rate when cared for by black doctors. So when we put that together with the infant mortality rate that we discussed earlier, now the next factor that needs to be uh, researched more is why do white babies' survival rates not change regardless of the race of the doctor that's caring for them? Okay. HIV and other, and other infectious diseases. Black people historically and uh, statistically get worse care and have worse outcomes when afflicted with infectious diseases such as HIV. Um, and black Americans die at higher rates from cancer that could have been treatable. So this brings in the question of access to care and timeliness and potentially options that are given to patients uh, inequitably in our healthcare system. And I'd like to say that as a practicing physician, even though these are statistics and they're just numbers and statements that the CDC puts out in a chart and you can just read through them and say, oh, that's interesting, that inter that's interesting, or that's horrible, or this is horrible. But as a practicing physician, 
I can tell you that I see pieces of these statistics act out every day in practice. Visibly, as patients come through the hospital, whether it be in an inpatient setting through the emergency room because of an emergent problem, or in the outpatient setting when they have a scheduled appointment, you can clearly see diseases and challenges to health start to group based on people's race, their sex, and even my perception as to where they may be coming from, okay? And I say my perception because if I don't have the data, right, it is just perception, right? So there is something to this. This is not just made up stuff. You're seeing these statistics actually play out every day in healthcare systems across the country. So what are your thoughts on improving uh, community inequality? So I start off by once again reinforcing how impactful is it when we have healthcare inequality? We go back to 1966 and Martin Luther King said, quote, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in health is the most shocking and most inhumane because it often results in physical death. He also stated that, quote, we are concerned about the constant use of federal funds to support this most notorious expression of segregation. We should all work with what he called the fierce urgency of now to eliminate inequality wherever and whoever it affects. So firstly, a lot of the solutions to the disparities that we're discussing, they're not solutions that we have to dig out from underneath a rock or create in a lab. A lot of these things have existed for years, but really haven't been implemented or haven't been implemented effectively. For example, in 2012, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality laid it all out. They stated there are two main ways that hospitals can improve their attention to decreasing health disparities. The ones that I want to focus on is really data, 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 and more data. Information. Information is key in health systems race, ethnicity, and language, and how do those things serve as points of improvement in health systems? So number one, collecting and sharing data across the healthcare system is imperative. Improving the data collection processes, also imperative. We need to enhance the existing existing health information technology systems. It's not uncommon in health systems to have different communication systems, okay? So what does that mean? Like for example, when you come to the hospital and you're registering, the system that the hospital is using to register may be system A, produced and maintained by company A. But when you come as an outpatient, to the same hospital for an outpatient procedure, 
that system may be system B, maintained and produced by company B. Those systems may not communicate at all. Okay, This is a huge problem. And lastly, it's the implementation of staff training. If you give staff the resources, but they don't know how to utilize the resources and follow it up repetitively and consistently to maintain quality, the software is no good, right? Let's think about this. In 2006, the National Public Health and Hospitals Institute surveyed hospitals that collected race and ethnicity data. They asked them, um, do they use the data to assess and compare quality of care? Do they use the data to utilize uh, and improve their health services, their health outcomes, their patient satisfaction? Fewer than one in five hospitals during that survey stated that they use that data for any of these purposes. Fewer than one in five. So that means that you're essentially collecting all this data, but nobody's doing anything with it, right? Wasted opportunities. Hospitals collect more data every day than NASA command centers collect data during a rocket launch. It's a way to gauge efficiency of policies and procedures and improve performance. We really need to energize metrics that will lead to reducing inequity. The communication amongst healthcare systems is poor. The current communication pathways are often not standardized. They're sporadic. We need to work to improve this crosstalk between systems. Entities need to improve the efficacy with which they collect race, ethnicity, language-based data from their patients. We need to improve the explanation as to why we're collecting this data. Think about it. The last time you went to the hospital or your private practice office or an urgent care clinic and you got a piece of paper or you filled it out on a tablet and it asked you what was your race or your ethnicity, what did it make you feel? Like, what did it incite within you? Oftentimes it's confusion. Sometimes it's annoyance because why? You don't know why they're asking you these questions. So if the patient doesn't know why they're being asked these questions, they're not gonna take it seriously. And if anything, uh, all you're gonna do is you're going to make your patients walk away from such questioning. Instead, we need to take that opportunity to explain to them how the information you're asking them can affect their healthcare and the, and the healthcare of their entire community. Checking the boxes would be done more willingly if people understood why they were checking the boxes. We need to train the staff how to get that information respectfully and efficiently, right? And respectfully, because if anybody talks about race, people start to tense up. So training is needed to get that information out of the patient so that they don't feel attacked or they don't feel like the information is now something political or something other than that. The entire healthcare system needs to track data and commit to tracking data no differently than they track data like um, infection rates, readmission rates, length of stay, bed occupancy, falls, patient satisfaction scores. These are all examples of data that we track to this day, every day, every minute, every hour. Efficiency and patient privacy with incorporation of information 
into currently existing systems is needed. And we need to incorporate a nationally standardized approach. So that means me in Washington, DC, and you in Hawaii, we need to be incorporating this data and utilizing this data the exact same way, not differently depending on what hospital we are, what system we are, what county we are, what state we are. And lastly, I wanna say, we need to be able to share this data with the providers. If only one in five hospitals is utilizing this data that they're collecting, that's a total waste. If we now get five of five of hospitals to collect and share data and utilize data, this is a huge move towards, towards decreasing hospital uh, and healthcare clinic or urgent care healthcare discrepancy. However, again, if the information is not shared with the healthcare providers who are providing the healthcare, then once again, the information is not helpful. Every day, what we need to do is send out emails or text messages to the providers and let them, let them know, are we meeting our goals this week? Are we meeting our goals this month? Have we fallen short this year? They need to understand where the overall progress is in order to maintain progress. The next point that we need to really focus on is patient advocacy evidence-based solutions related to continuing medical education and medical school and postgraduate training. This is paramount. Continuing medical education, as we know, is where providers on a, on a yearly basis, they must engage in didactic or group sessions where they keep up to date in order to be uh, most efficacious in their medical provision. So at the medical school and postgraduate levels, let's use that for example, medical school is a golden opportunity to teach the concepts of implicit bias, when and how they occur in healthcare and how patients are impacted. Also, the strategies to reduce their impact in health can be focused on in medical school and postgraduate training. Students must be trained to acknowledge, they must be trained to examine how to mitigate, mitigate their implicit biases. We all have implicit biases. If we don't do this, these implicit biases, which lead to false assumptions about patients, become integrated in the student's understanding and actions as they prepare to practice medicine. We have to intercalate into this pathway to change that. Private organizations also play their parts too. For example, I have a company called Ascension Medical Educators. What we do is we serve as a pipeline for all students with attention to underrepresented medical students who want to serve in medicine and be the models of equitable care to all, especially to underserved populations. Ascension Medical Educators is the midterm and the long-term effort example of how we contribute more compassionate and equitable doctors to the profession who will be the advocates of social justice in healthcare to sustain our efforts for equitable care for everyone. More work 
continued work, capacity, and advocacy is needed to continue the advance towards equity. So Dr. Dixon, why should every American be interested in decreasing healthcare disparities? Every American needs to be interested in healthcare disparity because simply it affects us all. And I'm gonna be honest with you, this due to American ideology and culture sometimes is a hard sell. But let me say this simply. Um, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Kathleen G. Sebelius, said, quote, health equity benefits everyone. Every person who dies young, is avoidably disabled, or is unable to function at their optimal level represents not only a personal and family tragedy, but also impoverishes our communities and our country. We're all deprived of the creativity, contributions, and participation that results from disparities in health status. Additionally, I add, for those of you who aren't sold on that, if health disparities continue to widen, where you have a huge percentage of the population that is sicker and therefore needs more help more health care that inevitably leads to higher costs. We are all right now fighting, or we are all right now realizing how expensive American health care is. We've all heard the stories of people having to mortgage their homes to pay for health care. Yeah. Every time people come to their clinics or their hospitals uh, or they're in their HMO systems, and they're entering the doors sicker with less, less preventative medicine, it costs the United States citizen more money. So if we're able to lessen the gap between people, regardless of their race or their socioeconomic status, we can actually start to chip away at the overall cost of healthcare something that people don't realize and this is something that if we start to if we start to really talk to the u.s population about this directly and not hide it from them they'll have a better understanding as to how disparity affects them even if they don't consider themselves part of the gap that's being left behind we all can benefit from reducing health care disparity you can email me at a dixon at AdventistHealthcare.com, and my last name is spelled Dixon, D-I-C-K-S-O-N. So that's A Dixon at AdventistHealthcare.com, uh, and also you can email me at Asante Dixon at AscendMed.com. Again, that's D-I-C-K-S-O-N at Ascendmed, A-S-C-E-N, as in Nancy, M as in Mary, E-D.com. Very good. As far as knowledgeable aging, uh, you can check us out on our YouTube page. I encourage you to subscribe. We update the YouTube page four to five times per week. If uh, podcasts are your thing, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, etc. Till next time, I'm your host, Jason Kotar, and this is Knowledgeable Aging.